title of the talk this afternoon is Giving Birth to Our Wildness. I just took a short walk now, and I saw the fox that seems to live with us here. And it's such a delight to see the way that it moves very, very lightly, just over the fence like a breeze. And I would love for us to remember that connected lightness, that wildness. I read recently that some people had done some studies on animals and finding that in the wild, as far as we can tell, there's not a tendency towards self-destruction in animals. And in captivity, there is a tendency towards suicide in animals, in what used to be wild animals. And it seems like something that we could learn from, the ways that we enclose ourselves and enslave ourselves to repetition, which is called samsara, starts to break that connected lightness that is what life is about. in animals like foxes and in animals like tigers and in animals like human beings. And at the same time, we're here and we're doing something pretty repetitive. And we hope eventually that what we're doing would be so ordinary that it's boring. One teacher of mine was laughing about how Japanese Zen practice is designed to be boring for Japanese people. But we go and do a very exotic Zen Japanese retreat, and the whole thing is so aesthetically exciting. The way the, f the food is served, and the way that we bow, and the way that we eat, and the way that we wash the bowl. It's so exciting. It's not actually boring enough to do what it's designed to do. So we hope that you would be able to continue with this really boring, just lying around, <laughs> doing nothing. So that it is just an ordinary, ordinary thing. So somehow something that's ordinary, but not enslaving, not captivity, but something that touches us so deeply, it starts to awaken our wildness rather than enslave our wildness, rather than break that connected lightness that I just saw in the fox. <coughs> so we can use repetition to come via boredom. We'll have to go through boredom one day. To come to the feeling of just the ordinariness <coughs> Ordinariness as awakeness, not as uh, dullness, not as captivity. But actually, the relief, being relieved of needing to be special, being relieved of our sickness, of feeling that we need something special in order to be okay, to be enough. Our sicknesses that we think we're sick 
and we need something special, some special attention or some special medicine, some special activity, some special way of doing something special right. And then will be enough. Then we can let that lightness happen in us. So our sickness is that we think we're sick. And actually, what's more of a similar situation to what our situation is spiritually, it's more like being pregnant. What we're doing is more like being pregnant. As Gemma was saying yesterday, there's not a going back. And the old joke that you can't be sort of pregnant. So here we are, stuck with ordinariness and wildness at the same time. And how is that going to fit together and how is that going to grow in us? Ordinary wildness. Wild ordinariness what's going to happen to us. There's a secret in, as far as I can tell, just about every spiritual tradition. And it has to do with this being pregnant and giving birth to our wildness. Even in the Buddhist text, so the Buddhist tradition being kind of the more dry or mental tradition. Even in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha himself was referred to as Bhagwan. Bhagwan is a word that is usually translated euphemistically as blessed one or the Lord or God. But actually Bhagwan literally means one means having someone who has and bug means vagina. Yes. <laughs> so there's these really serious Buddhist texts where these, all these monks and nuns who have renounced sexuality, sexual expression anyway, are referring to their respective teacher as, oh, you with the vagina over there. <laughs> I bow down to you. Oh, you who has the power to let wildness come out, to let genuine, connected, light-hearted wildness radiate, be seen, not as the hidden secret that we hope no one ever notices, but actually come fully out, be freely mobile, responsive, radiating wildness. The Buddha also talked about the importance of taking our experience really, really deeply inside and letting it develop and grow within us. And he also used the image of the womb. He said that how he ended up becoming free how he ended up breaking through to see things as they really are was by noticing the fact of our intimacy, the fact of our interconnectedness, the fact that I can't live without you and I can't live without the earth 
and I can't live without the hundred thousand things. Not because I'm addicted to them, but because they're not separate from me. That intimacy, that fact of intimacy, can be noticed and allowed really inside. And he said, if you can take that noticing of that fact of interconnectedness, if you can take that into your womb, take it so deeply into your mind that it's in the womb of your mind. He uses the word yoni. Womb. Yoni so manasikara. And so we know more or less what happens when someone is pregnant. There's something that happens fairly quickly, a moment where two things come together, and then a long time where we don't seem to be doing much. So we, we can just, in one split second, we can notice how much we are interconnected that just bare intimacy, the nakedness of ourselves, of life. And if we can dare to let that in very deeply into a place in us that we know is very sensitive, very fertile, receptive, and powerful, mysterious also, if we can let life in just for a second, and then if we can manage to wait and meanwhile eat well, drink well, go on walks, have a good atmosphere around, be conscious that we might have mood swings. This is what happens when we start to meditate when we start to really let life in, things usually get a little more messy. And if any of us have experienced women being pregnant, imagine men. <laughs> Just joke. There's a poem about this in intimacy and how messy it could be. And I just, I want to say, especially since I met Donna and Chris in Bodh Gaya first and the retreat there. And I read this poem there in the, in the Thai Buddhist monastery just with a lot of trepidation. It's not a very Buddhist poem. <coughs> but I knew I had to read it out of the feeling of love and connection with the people who were there. And it ended up being the theme of the next two Dharma talks. It ended up being the theme of the whole retreat. <laughs> and you'll see how strange that is when you hear the poem. It's another poem by this powerful woman, Mirabai, that Gemma mentioned yesterday, and I also mentioned the first night. She says, I tried controlling myself but it did no good. My senses are aflame. I heard you, with a capital Y, I heard you singing. That started all my blessed madness. 
I openly made love with everything in sight last night. And this morning, the constable, the police officer, showed up and wrote out 20 citations. I guess I should not have jumped naked on him in front of his wife. <laughs> the hypocrite, he wouldn't have minded at all if we were alone. I tried controlling myself, but it did no good. My senses are aflame. So this is the part that's, I think, maybe the, the more rich for us to explore a little bit. She's not saying that it's never worthwhile to so-called control ourselves. But when there's this possibility of letting life in, of hearing life singing and calling our name, really hearing that and letting that make us <coughs> crazy, when that's the situation, there's no way that we can find control. And there's no way that our good little obedient meditator selves controlling our mind will have any say in what's happening there. It's just this intimacy between life with a big L and that within me that is feeling called to be free. Technique is out the window or in the bed <laughs> with us, whatever. And she says, my senses are aflame. And the way I take this sentence, my senses are aflame. I think she's playing on the many, many texts, texts in most spiritual traditions that give us teachings that the senses are where we need to be careful, that the sense world is burning. That's where we need to hold back. And many times it's true. When we're acting from an addictive place, when we're acting from a place where we still believe we need something special in order to fill that gap in us, and then we'll be okay. When we're acting from that addictive place, then everything is burning. But there's this other kind of flame where things <clears throat> are vivid because we've let life in. There's aliveness within and without, and then the boundary of inside and outside goes up in flame. It's a different kind of brightness. It's a brightness without smoke. It's a brightness that burns away that feeling of inadequacy that's usually behind all of our driven, addictive burning busyness. Something can touch the wildness in us despite all of the many very uh, reasonable fears that we have. Despite all of the pain that is there for many good reasons in our spiritual depth as there is pain for many good reasons in our sexuality also in this other kind of intimacy 
we have been hurt and therefore there is a wish not to be hurt so we're not just kind of bulldozing through there we're finding that if we could drop the feeling that I need something special to be okay if we could notice that I am full I am enough as I am and from there it's not the end of the story from there is the beginning There's uh, one of my favorite texts in the world, happens to be in the Sanskrit language. And it gives us some suggestions for when we find ourselves at the threshold of liberation, when we find ourselves at least wanting to let life in, to really let ourselves open and see things as they are called the threshold of liberation. It's not a small thing. It's the fulfillment of life. So if we're at least wanting to let life come in and unfold in us, that's enough, and then there's some things that can help there at that place. In this particular text, we're told that there are four gatekeepers at the doorway to liberation. And it's a, it's a funny image. If we could swallow and digest even one of the four gatekeepers, if we could just get really into even one of these four gatekeepers, make it our own, that's enough because they're very interrelated. And then the other three will come along. So the first one, the first gatekeeper, the Sanskrit word is sham, which doesn't matter to you, but I like Sanskrit, so <laughs> I like to say sham. It sounds like a kind of noise that a superhero would make when they're about to fly or something. Sham. <laughs> but actually, it's about. Uh, developing a kind of skillfulness. So a lot of what we're doing when we're practicing, whatever we're practicing. But it's a very experiential kind of skillfulness. So it basically means not being quite so smart. Being as unsmart as we possibly can. So the skill is learning to trust that in the moment, what is needed will come up. And in a lovely way today, someone was mentioning how if she can be aware that there's something she doesn't understand, there's some difficulty in life, some tension, she can come to meditation and somehow out of nowhere an image comes up. And then that is helpful. Similarly, I've been fascinated by how similar pregnancy and childbirth seem to be to the spiritual path. So I've been reading a book by a North American midwife, 
that you might have heard of, Ina Mae Gaskin. She's been birthing babies for more than 30 years and doing it mostly in people's homes or in their natural birthing center in Tennessee. And they have found that even though they started without much knowledge, they're able to have a much better success rate in the sense of only 2% cesareans, for example, instead of 30, 40, 50% that we have now in hospitals of surgery to let the baby come out. So much less intervention needed, and only 6% of the cases needing to actually go out of the home to the hospital. So we start to feel that the overwhelming possibility is that even though this is a weird, powerful thing that's going on, it's also a natural thing that's going on, and that most of the time, if we have the right support, which is mostly encouragement, <laughs> mostly encouragement to stay with the moment and trust and see what comes up in that moment. that we can let wildness happen to us and show itself in our lives. We can actually watch the process that's happening to us with open eyes. We can actually see ourselves letting go of the past addictions and enslavements. We can connect to our instinct for awake. This is a phrase from one of my Tibetan teachers that I just love. That there is an instinct for awake. In the same way that Ina May has found that there is a way that the women's bodies can tune into birth as a natural process, even when it's difficult, even when it gets complicated. We can tune into our instinct for awake and let go of all of our smarts. So doctors have started reading her books to be inspired because doctors rarely have the time to actually watch a birth process, a natural, healthy birth process. So they're starting to learn from someone who is not trained as a medical doctor. They're starting to be able to remember what was recorded before medical science got so smart. So Ina May noticed that sometimes, for example, a woman might be in full labor, really opening up and the baby's getting ready to come out. And if someone comes in the room who is not in tune with the mother, the mother-to-be, the labor can reverse. The whole thing can close up. can even close up for weeks, sometimes even more than a month. So Ina May noticed this happening, and she looked in the current medical text and found not a single reference to this. The doctors were saying that it doesn't happen. The nurse midwives were saying, sometimes we think it might be happening, but if a nurse midwife makes a measurement that the woman is opening, let's say, to eight centimeters, and the doctor comes in later, and it's only half four centimeters, smaller, closed down, 
the doctor will believe the doctor's measurement and disbelieve the nurse midwife's. So this is something that happens to us in our spiritual practice as well. We can notice that something's happening and we can look in the currently available texts and not find it and say, oh, I must be wrong. The text must be right. But if we could look back further before we got so smart, there are many references when the old-fashioned doctors were writing down what they saw to this particular example where it's possible that there's opening and then if the woman feels like she needs to close, the body closes. So there's all kinds of unexpected things that are unexpected because they're not accepted by the current authorities. And we could start to trust our experience and not our smarts. Another part of Ksham, of the skillfulness that we can learn, is you might have noticed already here that it is possible to learn how to relax. It is possible to learn that it could be an almost infinite story, relaxing and relaxing more. <laughs> and then, oh, the, I didn't, I never, in however many years I've been alive, I never knew I had that tension, tension in my underarm or in my left hip. And if we can bear to be, to see ourselves, how unaware we have been, it's just fascinating. And it is part of this kind of uh, intimacy. Intimacy with life, including ourselves. Rather than taking it as a kind of something we've done wrong because we missed it all these years. One thing that's interesting about this area of developing skillfulness, ksham, is we're not guaranteed that we're going if we develop the ability to relax, we're not guaranteed that we're going to always be able to relax in any situation. We could develop the, the potential to be open and let an image come up in the moment, but there's not a guarantee there. So we're not armoring ourselves in this kind of skillfulness. It's a different kind of skill. It's not actually expertise, really. It's more like being able to be fluid with the unpredictable. So it's, we can't say that if there was someone who gave birth in a really easy way, it's because she was more skillful or he was more skillful if we're talking about spiritual birth, which is what I'm really speaking about. It just so happened that way. Things came together in that way at that time. So it's kind of, it's not actually a personal skill that I have. It's a way of really being with the interconnectedness of things and making the best out of whatever presents itself. And if things are, if it's a difficult birth, it doesn't mean that necessarily I had some emotional blockage. So if you're having a hard day, it doesn't necessarily mean that somewhere you're doing something wrong and we all know it. And can't you get over it and have a good time? One of the big problems, I think, that we end up in, one of the dead ends that we find, is that we often will take 
the appearance of negativity or difficulty or tension as a personal offense or insult. Something wrong that I've done wrong, something wrong with me, my dark secret, my deepest core. It can feel that way. It can feel like this is really the deepest that I've ever felt, and it's yucky. <laughs> and then the fear is that's who I really am. But actually, the possibility of feeling that yuckiness shows that there is something deeper. The ability to feel that is deeper than that. So that's one clue. That no matter how deep, no matter how yucky, no matter how difficult or painful, the fear that that's who I really am is just a fear that's part of the yuckiness. And if we can take it as it just so happens like that today and work with it, flow with it. In fact, there's kind of a clue in our observing, in our noticing, in our being revealed to ourselves. If I'm noticing something and it stays kind of solid and fixed. I noticed my anger, for example. I noticed my fear or my insecurity, my loneliness, my jealousy, whatever. Comparing mind is usually a big one on a retreat. If I'm noticing that comparing mind, if it's just staying as it is or getting stronger, then the way I'm noticing it is with some aversion, some sense that I don't really want this to be here because I don't want to believe that that could be really who I am. So most of the time when we're noticing, we're noticing with aversion. <laughs> and the aversion is going to keep us stuck with that. Somehow, sometimes it's possible to have that wide openness where it's just so happening that way. It's not my fault doesn't mean I'm not involved and participating and able to flow with this either. But it's not like, at core, my fault. We don't have to start from the starting point of the small self with its problems. <coughs> we could even see how the problems, difficulties, and pains reveal that the small self is not possibly all that there is. Because we wouldn't have just chosen that and said, today I really want to feel like shit. Thanks. I'll tell you when I'm ready to, to change it. Maybe around 5 p.m. There's a lovely poem by Rumi, <coughs> who was a Sufi poet. that can really be a good image for us in finding a way of flowing with whatever presents itself. Whether it's the perfect birth with the right part of the head presenting itself, or whether it's the baby's elbow, or face, or butt. The poem is called Bird Wings. 
Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. I'll just read some of the lines again because it's not that easy to get. Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look. And instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully coordinated as bird wings. This midwife, Ina May, has given a, a different name feeling the power of words. She's given a different name for what we call contractions when the baby is starting to get ready to come out. Because when we feel contraction, we so easily feel something's wrong. But obviously, without a contraction, the baby's not going to come out. <laughs> there's not that wildness if there's not contraction. So she calls them rushes. And so the women talk about feeling a really powerful rush or a light rush. <laughs> and probably already you felt some powerful and light rushes on this retreat. We have posted this paper about the five so-called hindrances. We could call them the five rushes so that we could actually feel what's going on, that it's not just a dead end that's happening. It's a contraction that needs to happen to bring the baby down. Some women noticed that sometimes they could relax into that rush, into that difficult. They could relax into that power. So it could be like feeling fear and then feeling just the power of the fear. Not getting too into the story of the fear, not being smart about the fear and how it was caused psychologically, but just tuning into the power of the fear, for example. So some women, quite a few women, that have been giving birth with Ina May and her other co-workers ended up feeling that powerful contraction rush as orgasmic, as just power, as ecstasy. And again, so that we're not thinking that we can be in, at, in the control room and ordering what we want, some women who were very relaxed <laughs> had been born on the same commune where this birthing room is 
had p talked about it as pain. So it was really hard, really painful. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, you feel fear. Can't you feel it as ecstasy? Sometimes that might happen. It's good to have that option to know that that could be what's going on. That the powerful movement that's happening of opening up sometimes can be felt as just life power. And sometimes can be felt as life power that is just ecstasy. That is the ecstasy of communion or intimacy. <coughs> so how that might work for us, let's say maybe anger is there. If we could tune into the feeling of anger in the body to such an extent that we can drop the word anger and just feel the energy. Sometimes it's the case that there's just energy moving that I, out of habit, was translating to myself as anger. And if I can untranslate it, <laughs> get back to the raw material, sometimes it's not actually anger or fear or loneliness, sadness, whatever. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the heat of anger. So having these options and not uh, getting too uptight about knowing what our problems are or knowing what's going on, labeling too quickly, ah, that's my anger, I've got that issue. But remembering the unpredictability and tuning into what's actually happening with enough trust that we could find out, is this what I call anger? What is this? And Rumi says, pain bears its cure like a child. So even if it's really just good old anger, terribly uncomfortable, self-torturing anger, if I can find a way of being intimate with that as just another expression of life, it bears its cure like a child. So I've been talking about Ksham and the possibility of developing steadiness, relaxation, and experiencing enough that we can start to not freak out and also not be too smart, not labeling too quickly and being too sure that we know everything about ourselves. Being very sure that we don't know everything about ourselves <laughs> might be <coughs> more fun and more accurate. The second gatekeeper at the threshold, the gateway of liberation, is called vichar. And in this case, the way I would describe vichar is a sense of awe or a sense of the vividness of our experience the aliveness of our experience. And naturally, there could be questions like, 
how does this make this pink out of dark brown dirt? Not like scientifically necessarily, but that's also interesting. But just kind of, that's really weird. If we look at it without thinking that we know about it, that's enough to undo us. It's enough to undo the, our whole way of living. Just that. From this openness to the strangeness of things as they are, there can be questions. There can be questioning our habitual ways and the habitual ways. So another brief example, a friend of mine just gave birth to her second daughter last year. And she just got this feeling, this intuition that she wanted to give birth holding onto a rope like this and hanging down from it. And her midwife looked at her like she was crazy. And only when I had this midwife book that I'm reading, I had it sent to my friend's house in New York. And she happened to look through it and she saw that's exactly what she had felt like doing. There's pictures of women hanging like this from bars or rope to support their weight. So it had come from her and she was trying to break the rules but she didn't have anyone around her saying yes, that's a good way to give birth. You can go with that one. So questioning the usual ways is, is one level of vichar. And an important other level of vichar is when a deep question or sense of surprise or astonishment or shock even gets to us, something gets to us. It can be unbearable. Just to stay with realizing I really have no idea <laughs> how this color happens out of brown. And I can let myself stay with that not knowing. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of vigilance, honesty. Usually we'd rather just have any old answer. We want, let's hear what science says. And then we actually take it on faith. We call it science, but we just take it on faith. I read somewhere that... <laughs> So if we could let that question by itself do its own digging in us and try to keep back that pressure to get an answer to no. So this is again this feeling of, well, a lot more than nine months with spiritual pregnancy, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but that sense that there are definitely things we can do to support, but we're not the main event. We're not the main protagonist in a pregnancy. We're supporting. We're supporting our own process. But if we get too involved, it's going to be a mess. The third gatekeeper is Santosh. 
which is usually translated as contentment. And in a way, that word would be really misleading. But we could say contentment in the sense of, if you remember a moment where you felt like things just as they are don't need to be any different. There's not something missing. There's not something I would like to change. So that's one way of describing contentment. But if you can remember a moment like that, or maybe two moments like that, it's big. <laughs> that has big ramifications. That it can be possible and it can be true that things as they are don't need me to meddle and fiddle. That the most important thing I can do is not meddle and fiddle. But tuning into that level or that space where I don't need to change anything And then what's left? It's not paralysis that's left. It's not the end of the story. This is, we're at the gateway. We're at the threshold to life. We haven't been born yet. What's left if I don't need anything to be different. Something can still move me. Something does still move me. The fourth gatekeeper is probably for us the most important, I would say. That might be my prejudice. It's my favorite one. It's called satsang which can be and is translated in many different ways. But basically it means being with good people. Being with people who are true. True to their calling, true to themselves. Which means that ends up being true to you as well. There are so many stories in this book by this Iname, this midwife where the woman who's giving birth needs some people to remind her that she can connect to her own wisdom. That's satsang. What we really are kind of hoping for is that satsang would mean I find the right doctor and I go on the right lucky day and I get the right intervention and then I kind of don't have to do anything. But satsang, being together with what is true, is mostly friends who can remind us to connect and find out what's next. Push or don't push? <laughs> Drink some water? I had a friend who was privileged enough to be present at a friend's birth a few months ago in Australia. And my friend Jess said that mostly the midwife who was attending the birth just kept saying to the friend who was giving birth, you know what to do. And the woman was like, I have no idea what to do. Tell me what to do. You know what to do. 
The woman who's giving birth feels like she has no idea what to do. And the friends are there to say, yes, you know what to do. Again and again and again. You know what to do. Other good functions of friends <laughs> is this lovely story where a woman is giving birth, but the opening is not happening very well. And her husband just spontaneously says, you're marvelous. <laughs> she just opened. <laughs> and she said, I know this is silly, but can you just say that again? <laughs> you're marvelous. <laughs> and she said to the midwife and to her partner, can you just, just keep saying it? And they just kept saying it like chanting it. And two hours later, the baby was born. Sometimes it can be not just in words, that kind of sharing. But Ina May has found that sometimes it really helps to kiss in the middle of all of that chaos and pain. She says, why don't you all just kiss a little bit? And again, many times, the opening happens, or the possibility of shifting out of the sense of pain of the rush into the vastness of the rush, the power of the contraction that's happening. That's often what happens with, when kissing goes on in the middle of all of that serious business of giving birth. Another time, there was a woman who had just given birth a few days before. And one of her friends was having a difficult and long labor, and the opening wasn't coming. So the midwife called the woman who'd just given birth, and she came to her friend who was in the middle of the difficult part, in the middle of hindrance attack. And she just got naked and lay next to her friend breast, belly, breast, belly. And the woman who'd just given birth had, exper had experienced the rushes as ecstasy. And just by holding on to her friend and her friend holding on to her, she was able to transmit that to the friend. The friend was able to come into the space of just, it's a powerful ecstasy. And the baby also is safely born. One last important aspect of satsang, in addition to reminding each other how marvelous we are and sharing the sense of vastness when that's accessible to us, maybe without words, best. Another really important <coughs> level of satsang is just so simple that we wouldn't like to call it spiritual just laughing so that the whole serious business of getting enlightened getting to the other side getting rid of this terrible personality all of that serious business is not serious business anymore and we can just let everything love us 
can let ourselves stand it, that everything loves us. we're just so ordinary that we're whole and full and moved by the wildness of life. gathering be a momentum towards liberation everywhere.